Chapter Three of Sylvie and Bruno Concluded. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Catherine Eastman. Sylvie and Bruno Concluded by Lewis Carroll. Chapter Three Streaks of Dawn. Next day proved warm and sunny and we started early to enjoy the luxury of a good long chat before he would be obliged to leave me this neighborhood has more than its due proportion of the very poor i remarked as we passed a group of hovels too dilapidated to deserve the name of cottages but the few rich arthur replied give more than their due proportion of help in charity so the balance is kept i suppose the earl does a good deal he gives liberally but he has not the health or strength to do more lady muriel does more in the way of school teaching and cottage visiting than she would like me to reveal then she at least is not one of the idle mouths one so often meets with among the upper classes i have sometimes thought they would have a hard time of it if suddenly called on to give their raison d'etre and to show cause why they should be allowed to live any longer the whole subject said arthur of what we may call idle mouths i mean persons who absorb some of the material wealth of a community in the form of food clothes and so on without contributing its equivalent in the form of productive labor is a complicated one no doubt i've tried to think it out and it seemed to me that the simplest form of the problem to start with is a community without money who buy and sell by barter only and it makes it yet simpler to suppose the food and other things to be capable of keeping for many years without spoiling yours is an excellent plan i said what is your solution of the problem the commonest type of idle mouths said arthur is no doubt due to money being left by parents to their own children so i imagined a man either exceptionally clever or exceptionally strong and industrious who had contributed so much valuable labor to the needs of the community that its equivalent in clothes etc was say five times as much as he needed for himself we cannot deny his absolute right to give the superfluous wealth as he chooses so if he leaves four children behind him say two sons and two daughters with enough of all the necessaries of life to last them a lifetime i cannot see that the community is in any way wronged if they choose to do nothing in life but to eat drink and be merry most certainly the community could not fairly say in reference to them if a man will not work neither let him eat their reply would be crushing the labor has already been done which is a fair equivalent for the food we are eating and you have had the benefit of it on what principle of justice can you demand two quotas of work for one quota of food yet surely i said there is something wrong somewhere if these four people are well able to do useful work and if that work is actually needed by the community and they elect to sit idle i think there is said arthur but it seems to me to arise from a law of god that every one shall do as much as he can to help others and not from any rights on the part of the community to exact labor as an equivalent for food that has already been fairly earned 
i suppose the second form of the problem is where the idle mouths possess money instead of material wealth yes replied arthur and i think the simplest case is that of paper money gold is itself a form of material wealth but a banknote is merely a promise to hand over so much material wealth when called upon to do so the father of these four idle mouths had done let us say five thousand pounds worth of useful work for the community in return for this the community had given him what amounted to a written promise to hand over whenever called upon to do so five thousand pounds worth of food etc then if he only uses one thousand pounds worth himself and leaves the rest of the notes to his children surely they have a full right to present these written promises and to say hand over the food for which the equivalent labor has already been done now i think this case well worth stating publicly and clearly i should like to drive it into the heads of those socialists who are priming our ignorant paupers with such sentiments as look at them bloated aristocrats doing not a stroke of work for themselves and living on the sweat of our brows i should like to force them to see that the money which those aristocrats are spending represents so much labor already done for the community and whose equivalent in material wealth is due from the community might not the socialists reply much of this money does not represent honest labor at all if you could trace it back from owner to owner though you might begin with several legitimate steps such as gift or bequeathing by will or value received you would soon reach an owner who had no moral right to it but had got it by fraud or other crimes and of course his successors in the line would have no better right to it than he had no doubt no doubt arthur replied but surely that involves the logical fallacy of proving too much it is quite as applicable to material wealth as it is to money if we once begin to go back beyond the fact that the present owner of certain property came by it honestly and to ask whether any previous owner in past ages got it by fraud would any property be secure after a minute's thought i felt obliged to admit the truth of this my general conclusion arthur continued from the mere standpoint of human rights man against man was this that if some wealthy idle mouth who has come by his money in a lawful way even though not one atom of the labor it represents has been his own doing chooses to spend it on his own needs without contributing any labor to the community from whom he buys his food and clothes that community has no right to interfere with him but it's quite another thing when we come to consider the divine law measured by that standard such a man is undoubtedly doing wrong if he fails to use for the good of those in need the strength or the skill that god has given him that strength and skill do not belong to the community to be paid to them as a debt they do not belong to the man himself to be used for his own enjoyment they do belong to god to be used according to his will and we are not left in doubt as to what that will is do good and lend hoping for nothing again anyhow i said an idle mouth very often gives away a great deal in charity in so-called charity he corrected me excuse me if i seem to speak uncharitably i would not dream of applying the term to any individual 
but I would say generally that a man who gratifies every fancy that occurs to him, denying himself in nothing, and merely gives to the poor some part or even all of his superfluous wealth, is only deceiving himself if he calls it charity. But even in giving away superfluous wealth, he may be denying himself the miser's pleasure in hoarding. I grant you that gladly, said Arthur. Given that he has that morbid craving, he is doing a good deed in restraining it. But even in spending on himself, I persisted, our typical rich man often does good by employing people who would otherwise be out of work, and that is often better than pauperizing them by giving the money. I'm glad you've said that, said Arthur. I would not like to quit the subject without exposing the two fallacies of that statement— which have gone so long uncontradicted that society now accepts it as an axiom. "'What are they?' I said. "'I don't even see one myself.' "'One is merely the fallacy of ambiguity, the assumption that doing good, that is, benefiting somebody, is necessarily a good thing to do, that is, a right thing.' The other is the assumption that if one of two specified acts is better than another, it is necessarily a good act in itself. I should like to call this the fallacy of comparison, meaning that it assumes that what is comparatively good is therefore positively good. Then what is your test of a good act? That it shall be our best, Arthur confidently replied. And even then we are unprofitable servants. But let me illustrate the two fallacies. Nothing illustrates a fallacy so well as an extreme case which fairly comes under it. Suppose I find two children drowning in a pond. I rush in and save one of the children, and then walk away, leaving the other to drown. Clearly I have done good in saving a child's life, but... Again, supposing I meet an inoffensive stranger and knock him down and walk on. Clearly that is better than if I had proceeded to jump upon him and break his ribs, but... Those buts are quite unanswerable, I said. But I should like an instance from real life. Well, let us take one of those abominations of modern society, a charity bazaar. It's an interesting question to think out. How much of the money that reaches the object in view is genuine charity, and whether even that is spent in the best way? But the subject needs regular classification and analysis to understand it properly. I should be glad to have it analyzed, I said. It has often puzzled me. Well, if I am really not boring you, let us suppose our charity bazaar to have been organized to aid the funds of some hospital, and that A, B, C give their services in making articles to sell, and in acting as salesmen, while X, Y, Z buy the articles and the money so paid goes to the hospital. There are two distinct species of such bazaars, one where the payment exacted is merely the market value of the goods supplied, that is, exactly what you would have to pay at a shop, the other where fancy prices are asked. We must take these separately. First, the market value case. Here, A, B, C, are exactly in the same position as ordinary shopkeepers, the only difference being that they give the proceeds to the hospital. Practically, they are giving their skilled labor for the benefit of the hospital. 
this seems to me to be genuine charity and i don't see how they could use it better but x y z are exactly in the same position as any ordinary purchasers of goods to talk of charity in connection with their share of the business is sheer nonsense yet they are very likely to do so secondly the case of fancy prices here i think the simplest plan is to divide the payment into two parts the market value and the excess over that the market value part is on the same footing as in the first case the excess is all we have to consider well a b c do not earn it so we may put them out of the question it is a gift from x y z to the hospital and my opinion is that it is not given in the best way far better buy what they choose to buy and give what they choose to give as two separate transactions then there is some chance that their motive in giving may be real charity instead of a mixed motive half charity half self-pleasing the trail of the serpent is over it all and therefore it is that i hold all such spurious charities in utter abomination he ended with unusual energy and savagely beheaded with his stick a tall thistle at the roadside behind which i was startled to see sylvie and bruno standing i caught at his arm but too late to stop him whether the stick reached them or not i could not feel sure at any rate they took not the smallest notice of it but smiled gaily and nodded to me and i saw at once that they were only visible to me the eerie influence had not reached to arthur why did you try to save it he said that's not the wheedling secretary of a charity bazaar i only wish it were he added grimly does oo know that stick went right through my head said bruno they had run round to me by this time and each had secured a hand just under my chin i are glad i aren't a thistle well we've thrust that subject out anyhow arthur resumed i'm afraid i've been talking too much for your patience and for my strength i must be turning soon this is about the end of my tether take o boatman thrice thy fee take i give it willingly for invisible to thee spirits twain have crossed with me i quoted involuntarily for utterly inappropriate and irrelevant quotations laughed arthur you are equalled by few and excelled by none and we strolled on as we passed the head of the lane that led down to the beach i noticed a single figure moving slowly along it seawards she was a good way off and had her back to us but it was lady muriel unmistakably knowing that arthur had not seen her as he had been looking in the other direction at a gathering rain-cloud i made no remark but tried to think of some plausible pretext for sending him back by the sea the opportunity instantly presented itself i'm getting tired he said i don't think it would be prudent to go further i had better turn here i turned with him for a few steps and as we again approached the head of the lane i said as carelessly as i could don't go back by the road it's too hot and dusty down this lane and along the beach is nearly as short and you'll get a breeze off the sea yes i think i will arthur began but at that moment we came into sight of lady muriel and he checked himself no it's too far round yet it certainly would be cooler 
He stood, hesitating, looking first one way and then the other, a melancholy picture of utter infirmity of purpose. How long this humiliating scene would have continued if I had been the only external influence, it is impossible to say. For at this moment Sylvie, with a swift decision worthy of Napoleon himself, took the matter into her own hands. "'You go and drive her up this way,' she said to Bruno. "'I'll get him along.' And she took hold of the stick that Arthur was carrying, and gently pulled him down the lane. He was totally unconscious that any will but his own was acting on the stick, and appeared to think it had taken a horizontal position simply because he was pointing with it. "'Are not those orchises under the hedge there?' he said. "'I think that decides me. I'll gather some as I go along.' Meanwhile Bruno had run on beyond Lady Muriel, and with much jumping about and shouting—shouts audible to no one but Sylvie and myself—much as if he were driving sheep, he managed to turn her round and make her walk, with eyes demurely cast upon the ground, in our direction. The victory was ours and since it was evident that the lovers, thus urged together, must meet in another minute, I turned and walked on, hoping that Sylvie and Bruno would follow my example, as I felt sure that the fewer the spectators, the better it would be for Arthur and his good angel. And what sort of meeting was it, I wondered, as I paced dreamily on. End of chapter 3